Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, David Schaefer. Welcome to another podcast, people. This is Jeff Brown, better known as the Bald Guy, and today I'd like you to welcome in David Schaefer, my EIUL elite expert. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in New Hampshire. Yeah, this is the time of year where you and I uh, get to enjoy good weather on both sides of the country. Yes, we do. Well, today we're going to try to talk, Dave, about what we have alluded to many times over several of these podcasts on the subject of EIUL. And I'm going to redefine EIUL for new listeners. And EIUL stands for Equity Index Universal Life. It's an insurance policy whose primary structure is meant to result in a tax-free retirement income, not a death benefit. So what we've alluded to many times is how flexible it can be when necessary. So, Dave, why don't you just take it from there, and I'll ask you questions as they arise. How flexible is this policy? It's very flexible. In fact, its original design as a universal life product uh, was designed to be flexible by E.F. Hutton, an old brokerage Wall Street guy, and his buddy who was the president of a life insurance company. And they loved uh, the fact that you could put money in and take it out tax-free, but they hated the whole life products that were around back then for various reasons. And one of the reasons that they didn't like it was its lack of flexibility. So they designed a life insurance product that has a, a whole lot of flexibility built in. Not total flexibility, but certainly uh, enough for anyone under any circumstances, I believe. So There you go. Now, Let's go down the list of some of the reasons why policyholders may require flexibility. What about if they have their income go away for a while? How can they keep that policy alive? Well, there's multiple ways that they can do it. The first and obvious way is let's say they lose a job for six months or nine months or something like that. So say they're four or five, six years into the policy, they build up enough cash value in there to pay the monthly expenses for an extremely long period of time. So they just stop making premium payments until they get back on their fee financially again. And then at that point, they start making them again, and they can choose to catch up or not catch up. That's up to them. I always suggest that they have the means to catch up what they miss. But the bottom line is it hasn't really cost them a lot as long as it's a temporary situation. Second uh, option would be just pay the expenses that are going on inside the policy, which in the first 10 years is about 25% of what the uh, premium we designed for them is. And so they just pay that 25% of their premium during that period of time to cover the expenses. And then once again, they have an option to catch up what they haven't put in or not. And then there's one other option. If what they're looking at is more permanent in nature, they can then decrease the death benefit. Now, the negative of that is that once you decrease the death benefit to decrease the expenses going forward, that's a permanent change. You can't undo it the next year if things turn around. So, But there is that. If there's some sort of permanent financial issue that's going to last permanently, then you can indeed decrease that death benefit to decrease the expenses going forward. Now, if you did that, Dave, would that necessarily decrease the ultimate retirement tax-free income at the end? The latter, we're talking about the permanent decrease? Yeah. In other, in other words, if you decrease the expenses permanently, would that decrease the, the reward at the end also? Yeah, oh, yes. Def definitely will because what we're looking at is, hey, I'm not going to be able to make that $1,500 a month payment. 
I just, there's no way, you know, something's happened in my life. I can never see that happen again. So you're not putting as much money in there. So what we're doing is we're trying to make it work with less money as best we can. So you will you will see a decrease in what we expected when we first started this out. But that's with anything. If you're putting in less money into whatever it is, you're going to get less to have out at the bottom line at the end. So there's nothing. That's just kind of math, you know. Unfortunately, that's the way it works. Now, I don't know if you were like me. I think a lot of us did this. When I was 22 and in my first full-time year of real estate brokerage, I was uh, working for my dad on the house side of it. I was going to retire at 30, and then it was 40. (laughs) And and by 40, I had already switched to the investment side of the business and and long ago got into owning my own brokerage. And and I said, well, I'll, I'll retire, you know, when I feel like it. Now I'm 65. And I'll retire when the third shovel of dirt hits the lid of my coffin and you don't hear me answering my phone. The thing with people, I think that happens universally. If one policyholder has, say, a 15-year plan and they're putting a ton of money in it and they started at 35, they're going to they're gonna retire, quote, at 50. And at 50, they decide, you know what, I started this new business five years ago. I love what I'm doing. I'm going to go another 10 years. How does that work? Well, they have options. They can stick to the original plan and just stop paying those premiums that year after year 50, 15 and just say, okay, I'm just going to let it ride out until I need it. Of course, every year it's going to go up some because of the way it, it goes up and doesn't go down. So however long they let it go is how much more money they're going to have in there to use eventually. The other option would be to continue making premium payments. You have that option at that point. And they don't have to be as much. Uh, they probably can't be more, but certainly there's a whole lot in between fully funding it like you had the first 15 years and zero. And you can change that from year to year. Just make a decision. Say, hey, you know, I'm just breaking into this new business. I don't really have any money to put into that this year. That's fine. And then the next year, well, we're starting to do well, so I'm going to start funding at 50% of what I was, and that's fine. And then at some point, maybe your next business is doing, going great guns, and, hey, I'm going to put in everything that I was the, the first 15 years. So you can certainly do that. So there's lots of options at that point. No one's going to tell you, hey, you can't put in any more money. <laughs> so Now, part of that answer, Dave, you said that you could resume putting in, you could put in less, but you couldn't put in more. One of the things that happens with my clients often is they have a planned for bunch of tax-free or very little tax capital gain, usually in the hundreds of thousands. And they would like to, say, add to their current monthly premium, yearly premium type EIUL. You've told me many times, just have them get a new one and use the, I want to say it's the rule of 72T, but I don't know if I'm correct there, but it's four years and a day, you make five equal payments. Do they have to do that, or can they just take, say, 100000 that they got and add it into an existing EIUL? The answer to that is very specific to their original design. For some people, I'll design the four years in a day right off the bat, and then they'll just let it run. And as long as they don't decrease that death benefit at that point, then they can start making those large payments again in the future if they wanted to. Other people, like I'll put an inflation adjuster in there where it goes up a little bit each year. They pay premium, 3 or 4 or 5%. And so they'll have some extra space to put some more money in. You might not be able to double it on a year-to-year basis, but probably over the $100,000, probably over five or six years, you can get it in there over that extra space I built in. But for other people, um, we're running it really tight, and we don't have that extra space. 
and then there uh, we'll have to get a second one. So it really depends on what our original planning strategy was. And I frankly, I've done it all three ways, depending on talking to people what they thought was going to happen in the future. So, you made an interesting comment inside your last answer, Dave, about they can resume the payments, or or maybe they can pay pay less. If you were making, say, uh, four years in a day premium, and then just letting it stop, and uh, you know, five or ten years in, somehow you had the same thing. You had an inheritance. Something happened where you have a lot of money. You could resume that, but you're saying as long as it wasn't more than the original equal payments you made to begin the EIUL. That's correct. And there's some yearly breaks there, like year seven is a break and year 11 is a break where they, they do look backs to see how much money's in there. But as long as you allow that death benefit to continue doing what it was doing the first five years, you would be able to continue to, uh, to put significant amount of money in there, similar to what you put in the first five payments. I, I think one thing that's happening in this podcast already, Dave, is that people are seeing how amazingly flexible this policy is. I have another question. Many people go in with a payment starting out for, there might be in their 20s or 30s and they want to go 30 years and they can afford $500 and they're told by you, okay, we need to index this to inflation because inflation is either going to get you on the premium or it's going to get you on the payout. So you'd rather have it on the payout as long as you can afford the premium. Once that premium goes up, and I think you use 4% as an example, don't you? Yes, I do. Okay. So maybe after 10 years of doing $500 a month, you know, that premium up is up to 740 and they really can't go any higher. They have the flexibility to just keep it at that 740 don't they? Absolutely. In fact, when I put those inflation adjusters on, they're voluntary. So each year you make a decision. Do I want to adjust it up? How much do I want to adjust it up? And, of course, there's limits to how much you can adjust it up, but you make that decision on an annual basis depending on what's going on in your life. So there's going to be some years where, for whatever reason, they're going to say, no, uh, I, I can't adjust it up. And there might even be some years that uh, they say, well, I've actually got to adjust it down a little bit. But that's the, the flexibility built into it. And when I do those for the younger folks, I always put that inflation adjuster in there because I know, and you know this too, Jeff, because you know how much you made when you're – 20s and 30s, <laughs> is that right. as you age, not only inflation, but you're moving up in whatever your profession is, and, you know, different things are going on. Maybe you get married, and your wife's doing the same thing. You have more money, or you have a little more flexibility with your money. And there's also going to be some years in there where you got kids that some things are going to be pulling on you in the other direction. So, But overall, you're going to have more money in your 40s and 50s than you do in your 20s to do things like this. That's just a fact, as, as you know. So, Oh, absolutely. I had an H&R Block worker say in front of my new bride when I was in my very early 20s, Mr. Brown, it would have been better if you didn't work this year. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny now. <laughs> so now... When 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 people are doing these EIULs, I have always had this question. I have tried to find fault with this for, what, the almost 10 years you and I have known each other. I don't know how long we've known each other, but I got rid of three EIUL agents before I finally found you. And I, I can't find fault. When we have live events and you're there all, all the time, 
people always ask you, you know, what happens when they fail? And your your answer never changes. The next one you see fail will be the first. So my my question is, you've never seen a properly structured EIUL fail. I want to I want to adjust that. I've never seen one failed where the client did what they were supposed to be doing. I.e., I've never had this happen to me personally. But I know of others that have where the client four years in just says, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to surrender it. And that's, that's they're just not designed for that, those early surrenders. So as long as they do what they're supposed to do, which is to, to make some premium payments, they're going to be fine. So. Oh, you mean when you don't change the oil for 50000 the car doesn't work anymore? Exactly. Exactly. Well, my question is, I, I use the analogy of discounted notes. I've been doing discounted notes myself and for clients for 41 years. And I understand that the public really hasn't been aware of them much at all. It hasn't been on the public radar up until the last five to eight years, ten years at the most. And every year it gets more and more visible. And people want to know more and more about them. I understand now. But with the EIUL, it's, it's closing in on 20 years being on the radar. Why isn't it more popular? That's somewhat of a misnomer because it's the fastest growing insurance product in the market and has been over the last four or five years. So it is gaining a lot of popularity. But we have to face facts that when we're dealing with retirement income, we're dealing against Wall Street and the government propaganda. They have been telling folks and pounding the gavel for folks that a 401K with a mutual fund is the only way to save for retirement income. You see it all the time. They never talk about, you know, what the results of their advice has been. They always tell people this is what it is, and it comes from very powerful sources, the U.S. government and Wall Street. And so when I hear that, I just tell people, I say, well, you know, maybe so. But then again, you know, how many really wealthy people are there, and do they always do the popular thing? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, if you're going to follow the lemmings, you're going to have to pay the piper sometime with that. So that cliff's going to come up. So. You know, I think with a 20-year history, we're sitting pretty good at understanding how EIULs work and don't work at this point. And with an even longer history, 401ks with uh, mutual funds inside them, we know very well how they don't work. So uh, I don't think there's any question marks at this point. And let's end with this, Dave. I know that with EIULs, and uh, they they just slaughter 401ks. Uh, I have not been on any stage, small, medium, or large, in the last eight years without asking the audience this question. Raise your hands if you know anybody who is retired with a 401k yielding income of 40000 or more. In all those eight years or so, I've had four or five people raise their hand. And my point is this, to underline what you said about 401ks at work and, and mutual funds. Forbes wrote a great article. I forget how many years ago. Maybe you remember. But it basically said that the average boomer at six on their 65th birthday had 100000 or less in their 401k. And for the record, they all had matches. So that argument just falls on deaf ears with me. The point being, even if you ended up with a million dollars at retirement in your 401k and you did what the universe of advisors tell people they're going to do, which is about 4% because, you know, everybody's being, quote, risk averse. And I always wonder, if you're on Wall Street, which everybody has to be, they're forced with their 401ks these days, if it's 2.2% or whatever it is for a 10-year treasury 
and they're going to almost double that at 4%. Uh, how risk-averse can that possibly be, number one? And number two, you took 30 or 40 years to get a million dollars, and you're making $40,000 a year in California before tax? Tell me how you're doing the happy dance. Yeah, I, I don't get that either, and it just doesn't make any sense. And that's that's what I discovered back in the 1990s, you know, I just something in the back of my head just wasn't clicking on with I was doing it. I was putting money into a four oh one K into mutual funds, you know, and uh I was doing it but something wasn't clicking with me and that's what kind of started me off onto the direction I ended up going was trying to find alternative ways of doing it that made it more sense. And that's one of the big deals. It's like really, I mean, that taking on all that market risk and you're taking on a whole lot of market risk when you have a mutual fund. A lot of market risk. To only get those type of gains is just, well, it's probably the definition of insanity for, for me. Well, and I'll, I'll close with this observation of empirical fact. You did a an EIUL for one of my good clients who is putting less in premium per year than he had been in his 401K. Now, it's very much less, a little bit more than half. And it's after-tax money versus pre-tax money in the 401k. When he's done, he lives in Colorado. He's in his early 30s. Just had a baby, married. And he's going to do about $210,000 a year when he hits Social Security age, tax-free, until he's in his late 90s. I would love somebody to tell me how they're going to come close to doing half of that pre-tax with their 401k. Yeah, I think you'll hear crickets on that one. Yeah, I always do. I, I always do. And what's so maddening is I've had a few clients say that their insurance agent says EIULs are just not that good. They don't have a good track record. And I said, I will get them on a conference call with you, me, them, and Dave Schaefer. And no insurance agent has ever taken me up on it. Yeah, unfortunately, that's uh, that's the world we live in, that people spout out about things that they don't understand or, or don't care to understand. So, Anywho, I hope we, uh, matter of fact, I know we really showed people today about how flexible the EIUL is. And uh, listeners, I will reiterate, I have a bald guy team policy that anytime I refer uh, a client to any of the elite experts on industries other than notes and real estate, I am forbidden by my own policy of getting a, any kind of referral fee or, or kickback. I just don't do it. I used to back in the day. There's nothing wrong with it. That's how America works. But I'm old school. I want you all to know that if I recommend an EIUL and for you to talk to Dave, it's because I think it's the right thing to do, not because I'm making more money. Dave, thanks again. Yep. We'll see everybody next time. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, David Schaefer.